Father, in your written word and through the spoken word, help us encounter your living word, our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. Amen. In the, uh, the, the bulletin handout today, if you turn over another page, you'll see on the right-hand side, Revelation chapter 4. And uh, the, uh, the verse number's nice and bold and easy to see. And uh, once I get into the sermon, I think you'll find that having that open in front of you will be a great help. Most Australian Christians spend very little time thinking about heaven. When asked what we think of what it will be like, uh, most of us are a bit lost for words. What would you say? St Paul told the Colossians, set your minds on things that are above where Christ is, not on things that are on earth. Now, he did not mean to stop thinking hard about your job or about your children or about your budget or about your health, etc. But rather he said make heaven, he meant make heaven your top goal, your chief anticipation of delight, your number one dream. But for most of us, however, life in Sydney can be so full of earthly delights that we do have to push ourselves a bit to even wonder what heaven will be like, let alone to make it our chief ambition. But our spiritual health depends upon us doing this a bit better. Set your minds on things that are above where Christ is, not on things that are on earth. But of course, it's not easy to uh, imagine up a picture of heaven. What might it look like? What might we do there? How might we feel? Now, I don't, I don't think it's any surprise that uh, we have a bit of difficulty in getting all this together because there's not a great deal in our experience that directly helps us to comprehend what heaven is like. Heaven is so other. Its details can seem just beyond us. And as a little illustration, just imagine, for instance, that you belong to an Aboriginal tribe, maybe 100, 150 years ago, way out past Uluru, in the vast expanses of the desert. And some white man uh, trundles into camp and will say he's welcomed, uh, and he's very smart, he learns the language and he can converse with you. And so you ask him, where does he come from, this strange man? And so he describes perhaps England, the land he's come from, with its cities, big buildings, fast, wide, flowing rivers, trains, and how he's come on a boat across an ocean. What, what could you possibly use to explain an ocean? Imagine all this sand that you can see is water. How, how much sense would that make? And how it takes weeks to get across this ocean. And the surf and riding horses and milking cows. I mean, how could the tribe's people possibly even begin to understand? They've got nothing in their experience that helps them, that ties them in as he tries to explain to them the life from which he's come. 
And I think it's like that with us and imagining heaven. It is an experience which in many ways is so beyond what we know in this world. It's hard work. But the book of Revelation is tucked away at the end of the Bible and we're having a bit of a peep at it. When it was written about 60 years after Jesus' crucifixion, um, a fellow called Domitian was the emperor and he was a good emperor and all the good emperors were the ones who persecuted the church. The efficient emperors, at least, were the ones who were cranked up on the persecution because he demanded to be worshipped himself. I'm the emperor, you will, you will worship me, I'm the Caesar. And persecution was on the increase. And so when this book was written, uh, the author is experiencing some, an extraordinary series of visions, but to write them down, because they had political implications, he uses a bit of a code and uh, does it quite a lot. And so it can be for us just something that spins our minds. But uh, there are those who studied it and it's not too difficult, at least to get the broad drift. Now in the first three chapters, uh, there's the introduction that Michael talked about last week, and then the next two chapters consist of seven letters that uh, God was sending out to uh, churches in the southwest of what we call Turkey today. And most of these messages to these individual churches contain both praise for the things that they were doing well and right, but also criticism for the way they were dropping the ball. And there's a great urging upon the churches, the seven of them, to, to, to man up and to smarten up because some real strife is just around the corner and you need to be girded up and ready and prepared because things are looking a bit grim. But having listed those seven letters and those warnings, then the vision swings to where we are today in chapter four and next week in chapter five. A great change of focus. The author here is given a vision of heaven, which of course he, he tries to describe to us, but uh, it's a patchy description of what it looks like. And as you know yourself, when you have a dream, when you go to describe it, the description never ever really does it justice. But it's good for us to remember that just like dreams, so too with visions, even more important than the facts or the picture is what it feels like. It's the emotion that is the real thing. So as we look at, uh, at these verses, I'll mention uh, the number of the verse and we'll see how we go. And uh, you're pleased to know we start in verse 1. John, talking about his experience afterwards, says, I looked and there in heaven a door stood open. Now the, the Greek grammar that this was first written in is quite clear. This door being opened is a once and for all experience. It will never be closed again. It's been opened and it's stuck open. It has been opened, full stop. It's not a swinging door. It will never be closed. The way to God has been thrown wide open. And of course the heart of the New Testament is just this. Thanks to Jesus, everyone may now have access to God. The door is open. Come up here, trumpets the voice. In verse 2, he says, at once I was in the spirit. Not sure what that means, but in this vision, he sails, as it were, through the open door 
into heaven. And you can imagine him stopping dead. Thirty uh, odd years ago, um, when my kids were uh, much younger, our family climbed up the, uh, the enclosed staircase in uh, the tower at St Paul's Church, uh, Cathedral in London. You go round and round and round and round and finally, after several of these circuits in the stairs, you come to a doorway, step through the doorway and then suddenly in front of you is the Grand Canyon. You're on the lip. It's a huge gaping distance, way down to the floor below you, way up to the ceiling, an even bigger distance. And across to the other side of the Whispering Gallery is also an enormous distance. And there's just this little rail in front of you to hold you back. And uh, the kids were all excited, but I wasn't. I grabbed both of them and dragged them back and we leaned against the wall while we got our breath. And next to us, there was an American tourist who was just totally unaware of us and he was just uh, stuck there saying over and over, oh my God, oh my God, I don't think he was praying, oh my God, just awe and wonder, totally lost in amazement. And I think that multiplied by who knows how much was John's experience as he comes through this door because he moves into an infinitely more breathtaking sight. A throne with one seated. That's God. One who looks like jasper and carnelian and a rainbow that looks like emerald is around the throne. Uh, last week I wandered into a gem stop, shop in, uh, in Atherton up in North Queensland. In, in front of me there were boxes of polished stones and, surprise, surprise, one was marked Jasper and the one next to it was marked Carnelian. They obviously knew I was coming. Uh, one is orange and the, the other one is sort of light brown. But they're polished and they're shiny and pretty. Now, the second of the Ten Commandments forbids making graven images of God. And John just automatically refrains... Uh, from even describing the appearance of the one who is on the throne. Instead, he just resorts to colour. And this image, it's bright, spectacular, richly coloured, eye-catching, glorious, like nothing he'd ever seen or imagined before. As he stands there, he notices more. Verse 4. Around the throne... Seated on 24 thrones are 24 elders dressed in white with crowns on their heads. 24? Two lots of 12. The 12 tribes of Israel, the 12 patriarchs that started the 12 tribes of Israel from the Old Testament, the 12 apostles that Jesus chose to start his church in the New Testament. In heaven, God keeps company with the Jewish saints and the Christian saints. God's people from across all the generations and all the millennia. And they are dressed in white because they are the forgiven ones. They have been made pure by Jesus' cross. And they wear gold crowns, the prize, uh, like in a Greek athletics competition, the prize for persevering, especially under pressure and persecution, all the days of their lives in honouring God. And verse 5, as he looks, 
at the throne and the one on the throne and these 24 representatives all around. Verse 5, coming from the throne, lightning, thunder, and in front, seven torches who symbolise the spirit of God. Now, this one on the throne with this thunder and lightning, etc., is the one who said, let there be light, and there was light. The one who ordered the whole creation, and it was so. I mean, what power, what authority. This is the one who will finally see his will be done. I mean, what better symbols than flashes of lightning and peals of thunder issuing awesomely from the throne? While... In front of the throne, as the lightning and thunder explode overhead, verse 6, there, was, there is a sea of glass like crystal, an absolutely still lake at dawn, not a ripple, absolutely peaceful. This God is both a raging power and perfect peace, symbolised by lightning and thunder, and this sea of glass. Brilliant. But it gets better. As he continues to look, around the throne are four living creatures full of eyes and in front and behind. At this stage, most of us tune out and go to the next chapter. It's getting a bit spooky and odd. But the whole thing about the, the eyes with front and back is they see everything. There are no secrets in heaven. Everything is uncovered. Everything is known. Everything is obvious, and it's obvious to everyone. And these creatures that we see in verse 7 are like a lion, an ox, a person, and an eagle. These are creation's most noble, the lion, most strong, the ox, most wise, the person, most swift, the eagle. Creation's great ones. And uh, it's the whole of creation is involved in praising God. Uh, these, uh, these particular four creatures pop up half a dozen times in Revelation, but always when they appear in the vision, they are full of praise for God. It's as though creation's great ones are just totally so blown away by what they see and know that they just cannot stop, they cannot shut up. Because in verse 8, day and night, without ceasing, they sing, Holy, 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 the Lord God, the Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And they, they rejoice in three of God's major qualities. His holiness, his power, and his eternity. You know, when we humans want to rejoice in something, we... Uh, if it's really something, we leap to our feet and roar and punch the sky and then perhaps a little quieter between all the oohs and the ahs. We go on and on about what we find so fabulous. It doesn't matter if no one's listening. We'll pour it out anyhow because it's all wound up inside us. The music or the painting or the wine or the meal or the dancer, or a book, or the baby, or a friend, or the try, or a tackle, or a goal, or a thoroughbred, or even a bargain bit of real estate that we've bought. We enjoy what thrills us, and we enjoy it over and over each time we repeat it, because it's so good. And when we talk about it, it's even better. It's so glorious. Now, that's 
what these four all-seeing living creatures are doing. Without ceasing, they sing, holy, holy, holy. That's God is righteous. Lord God Almighty, God is powerful. Who was and is and is to come, he is eternal. Back on earth, evil is spoiling life. And it's grim and it's going to get grimmer. But in heaven, goodness and purity are reigning unchallenged and eternally. And one day, they will sweep the earth and straighten things out. No wonder these four creatures are ceaselessly praising. But there's more. Verse 9. Whenever the living creatures give glory and honour and thanks, verse 10, the 24 elders fall down before God and worship him and they cast their crowns before the throne and they sing, verse 11, you are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honour and power. And they add their own reason, for you created all things and by your will they existed and were created. The whole of creation shouts the glory and power and majesty of God and they're blown away by it and cannot stop cheering and praising and worshipping. And then in chapter 5, where we go next week, the excitement just grows even more intense. Well, what are we going to make of this vision? I hope a lot. You've now got a bit of a scene in your head and you could almost, if you've got a paper and pencil, you could, you could draw this and uh, you could look at the person next to you and their effort to draw it and you could recognise because uh, John has given us uh, some concrete things, although goodness knows what you would do with the person that's on the throne, the Jasper and Carnelian and lightning and thunder and uh, I don't know how you'd draw that. But... I think you can sort of forget the picture, forget what it looks like and focus instead on what it feels like, on the emotion. And the emotion here, as I said, it gets even more so in chapter 5, but you, you see it now, you feel it now. It's this, this is wild, it's excited, it's spontaneous. This is hilarious cheering to the rafters. This is leaping in the air. But at the same time, it's deep and awe-filled and gobsmacked amazement, falling to their knees, faces to the floor. It's intense. It's fabulous. Can you recall a time on earth, obviously, when you witnessed something or someone that was so wonderful that, that uh, you were moved to unrestrained cheering or maybe even struck dumb with wonder? I can think of a few experiences, but just one. Uh, 25 years ago, I was sitting at home watching television, and this was the, the last appearance at the Sydney Cricket Ground of the West Indian captain, the noble and majestic Clive Lloyd. And when his innings was ended, as he returned back to the stand, he was met by that small vehicle that they used to remove injured football players and uh, he was told to stand on the platform which he did and then he was driven around the full 
circuit of the Sydney Cricket Ground, just a few metres in from the fence, fairly slowly, took quite a while, and uh, the whole crowd rose to its feet. This is the last time this man was going to play on the Sydney Cricket Ground. And as the van got, the, the, the vehicle got close to each section of the crowd, just cheered all the more, people standing on the seats. Without exception, thousands and thousands. Many had come wagging work that afternoon just to be there for the event. A huge white crowd giving massive honour to a black man. Now at home, alone in my lounge room, I had to stand. I was so moved, so moved. I was fortunate enough to live in a time when this guy graced our sporting fields. But that is nothing compared to the emotional experience of heaven. That's just a little foretaste. When you think of heaven, think emotion. And in the meantime, start practicing. Start getting ready. Every time you pray, rehearse like these characters in heaven around the throne do. Rehearse what you know of God's magnificent qualities. Start your prayers that way. Such as, God, you are holy. You are almighty. You are eternal. You made everything. You sent Jesus to save us. You love even me. I worship you. Start your prayers with real praise based on real truths. Doing on earth exactly what they do in heaven. Holy, 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 the Lord God, the Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And you are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honour and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. And in your heart, fall on your face and worship him who has called you out of darkness into his marvellous light.